It is a joyful privilege to again worship with you this morning and now through uh, speaking the word of the Lord with you today. Thank you to John, one of the elders here, for being gladly interrupted to stop a uh, overflowing um, urinal earlier. <laughs> that would not stop. So thank you, God. Uh, thank you, brother. I don't know where he is right now um, for, his, for that ministry. And uh, I know, I'm excited, I'm thankful that the same sun who hardens the clay is melting the ice right now, right? Praise be to God. Uh, to borrow an analogy from Narnia, the uh, white witch is fleeing and Aslan is on the move. So praise God for that. Um, <clears throat> I am thankful you're here this morning. And uh, so without further ado, uh, thank you, Pastor Evan, for last week bringing us through Exodus 3. Uh, we saw in Exodus 3 that... Uh, we got a little bit of a glimpse into the nature of who God is in that text and something about the kind of the outline of God's plan to bring the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt to the land that God had promised to Abraham and his offspring over 400 years before this. And so we saw God was calling Moses to go to Pharaoh to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and in chapter 4, we learn here more about the means that God is going to use to help accomplish this deliverance. And by the end of the chapter, we will end finally with Moses in Egypt. So, as we dive in, let me give you a brief roadmap for our time together. Exodus 4 could easily be split into two halves. We thank you, Deb, for graciously reading the first half, which is uh, the continuing story of God's dialogue with Moses at the burning bush. And then verses 18 through 31, we'll see a bunch of different scenes in quick succession, almost like a biblical montage of sorts. If you want to find uh, or kind of follow a nice three-part rhyming structure, which is kind of the Baptist way, then uh, let me recommend uh, the one suggested by the Broadman Bible Commentary. If we follow the theme of faith being tested or tried, verses 1 through 17 will show us Moses' faith tried in preparation before going to Egypt. Verses 18 through 26 show Moses' faith tried in migration as Moses goes to Egypt on his journey. And verses 27 through 31 will thirdly show Moses' faith tried in proclamation as he and Aaron uh, proclaim the word of the Lord there in Egypt. So faith tried in preparation, migration, and proclamation. So let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open today. We're going to be going through all the texts, and I will be pointing you to it. But as, you, uh, as we dive in, would you join me very briefly again for another word of prayer? Father, again, we thank you uh, for the privilege that it is for us to gather this morning. That even though like the sun, you dwell in unapproachable light, and you would have been just to destroy us for even attempting to gather in your presence that you have given us mercy, that you have shown a way through Christ, that uh, the same sun that, that is unapproachable, also we feel the warmth, we feel the presence. And so we ask you to come now and be in our midst, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts uh, to hallow your name, to glorify you and honor you. And um, we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the burning bush part two. Now some of you may remember going to cinema, to movies growing up, uh, some of the older films used to have a break in the middle where you would actually 
get up and be able to go to the bathroom. Yeah, Deb's over there dancing and celebrating. I miss those days a little bit now. I'm like, oh, when's this movie going to end? <laughs> Got to go, <laughs> you know. Uh, it used to be called the intermission, right? And I remember as a kid going to see The Sound of Music once in theaters. And uh, they played an organ during the intermission. You got to go to the bathroom and stuff, and it was really cool. And so uh, those days are over now. But last week to this week, the middle of the burning bush story, that's kind of like intermission. All right? So we're picking up abruptly right where we left off. And so if you'll recall from last week, we saw in Exodus chapter 3 that Moses had so far asked two somewhat reasonable questions to God. Question number one, Moses had said, who am I that I should go, right? And then his second question had been, well, if they ask me what is your name, God, what what should I say? What should I tell them? So two questions so far, and now Moses has heard the plan in chapter three. God has promised that it's going to happen. And Moses responds, of course, with a hearty, let's do this, and they get on the way, right? Oh, well, not so fast. Uh, Look at verse one again. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So if Moses' first two questions were somewhat ambiguous and uncertain as regards to the inner workings of his heart, here we have de facto concrete evidence that Moses is doubting the words of God. God had said in verse 18 of chapter 3, and they, the Israelites, will listen to your voice. And here Moses is saying, they won't believe me. They, they need more evidence, right? Now this, re- this request wasn't a surprise to God. He wasn't shocked by this. And amazingly, he graciously accommodates Moses. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Now, of course, God knew what it was, but, you know, Moses was like, well, it's my staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. So Moses took it and threw it on the ground. Does anyone remember that reference? Like, no one. Okay. Ten-year-old video pop culture reference, Andy Samberg style. That's probably how Moses did it, right? So Moses' reaction here is probably what most of us would do, right? A few months ago, I was in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, and a customer came up in their car with a snake around their neck. And I was like, okay, I've seen dogs, I've seen cats, I've seen uh, birds, all kinds of things, but a snake, that was a new one. And I was just like, I don't know if the snake is poisonous or not, but Lord, please help me as I hand them their food. You know, I'm like trembling, like, have a great day, it's our pleasure to serve you, you know. Um, So I wonder here if Moses, you know, he kind of, he does run from it kind of Indiana Jones style a little bit, you know, Indiana Jones, afraid of snakes and all that. And we're not told what the snake looked like physically. I mean, was it poisonous? Was it not poisonous? Moses may have known, right? I mean, he grew up in Egypt, had the -the state-of-the-art education. He'd been a shepherd for decades. He probably was more knowledgeable about snakes than I am. So I wonder his reaction, right? He's like, oh, it's a cobra. i got to get away from that one. I don't know. Whatever the case, Moses' response is obedience. In verse 4, the Lord says to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he puts out his hand, and he catches it, and it became a staff in his hand. Now, in my understanding, uh, there is uncertainty here as to regards what is kind of the normal practice at this time. Do people normally grab snakes by the neck or by the tail or whatever? 
It's not really clear. It's, it's very possible that God was telling him to do something that appeared foolish to other people, but was wise because God said to do it, right? And uh, I was reminded through that this week, we should not be hesitant to obey God's word, right? Even if the world around us think it's, thinks it's foolish, right? The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. But I love the dual imagery here of God turning the staff into a snake. Um, it is well documented that the ancient Egyptians would use snakes like cobras and everything from Tumart to these arm brand amulets they would wear that would supposedly protect the user from a fatal snake bite. And so culturally and contextually, it makes sense that God would do this, that he would turn the staff into a snake and not a penguin or a cat or something else, right? Um, again, animals and humans, there's, like, isn't this beautiful, right? God's uh, the distinction in creation here, right? At the same time, as we see here God's undomesticated sovereign power over all creation, we can also think back to the Garden of Eden, the book of Genesis, which Moses also wrote and wants us to have in our background this idea in Genesis 3.15 in the garden where God promises one day that a snake crusher is going to come. He's going to crush the snake, that old serpent, Satan, and mortally wound that liar. And so maybe here in Exodus 4, God is just kind of foreshadowing this a little bit, right? Like the snake crusher is coming. He is coming, and he's going to deal him a mortal death blow. So, um, as I think about that, and I think about the fact that Satan can't do a single thing without God's sovereign, wise permission, right? Martin Luther said in the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, And though this world with devils filled shall threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And he was dealt a mortal death blow by the cross, and he is flailing. His time is short. And I can't wait to see his doom, Revelation 20 style, where God's going to take him up and throw him on the ground. And throw him in the lake of fire, and it will be done. May that day come quickly. Now, if this first sign wasn't enough evidence for Moses to convince the Israelites to believe that the Lord had appeared to him, God gives him a second sign in verse 6. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And so he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Now, this term that is often translated in our English Bibles, leprosy, it's not as narrow in scope as I, I usually think, or maybe you usually think. Typically, what comes to my mind when I think of leprosy is something more along the lines of uh, a disease like Hansen's disease, some sort of skin ailment. But this word, leprous, is actually used more broadly throughout the rest of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. We see it referred to a wide variety of infectious corruptions. Uh, it even refers later, like in the book of Leviticus, to mold. The priests would have to go into people's houses and check for mold. And uh, they also had to check for skin diseases on people too. So aren't you glad today, pastors, that that's not part of your job description, right? You know, all the people coming out to you and you diagnosing, you know, what's going on here? It's all these boils and stuff. 
Um, can I get a hallelujah for that, right? I, mean, um, I think it's interesting to think about if uh, Moses maybe put it inside of his cloak and every time he took it out, it was a different skin disease, right? You know, like you have this revolving door of, oh, what cancer is it now, you know? And maybe he's at the dinner table and he forgets, don't put your hand in your cloak because every time you do, everyone's like, oh, Moses, we're eating right now. You know, like, stop doing that. Um, this second sign, though, is more intimate, right? It, it affects his body, not just his sap. And it shows God's power not to just domesticate and control and restore the rest of creation, but to even heal us, to heal our very bodies. And I think here God is also setting the way for, as we come to the end of, Levi- of Exodus and then on to the book of Leviticus, which it's easy to jump over in your Bible reading, right? Because you're like, all these rules seem really random. Well, they're not. They, they are a response to a problem. And one of the problems we have is because of the fall, because of sin, death is everywhere, right? Even the flakes of skin that fall off of us, the bodies, liquids that come out of us. Uh, but God brings life, right? So we see those themes already foreshadowed here. So look with me at verse 8 as God continues. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So the third and final way God offers Moses to convince the Israelites is turning the Nile River water into blood on the dry ground. Now, not only does this turn out in chapter 7 of Exodus to be the first of what we call ten plagues on Egypt. But I think that in some ways, this very sign forms a picturesque contrast, if you will, between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 3, we see that there was glory in the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation and all these sorts of things that came through the Mosaic Covenant. But the most that Moses could do with water was turn it into blood. Contrast that with Jesus. In John chapter 2, on the third day, the text says, which is pretty cool to think about, right? Like his first sign is on the third day. A wedding in Cana of Galilee. We find that his first sign that he does to kind of kick off his public ministry. It's not turning water into blood, right? It's turning water into wine. Christ has come to obtain a bride for a future wedding feast. Moses' blood brought forth signs of judgment. Christ's blood speaks a better word. I know I'm getting a little uh, Charles Spurgeon allegorical today, so let's move on with verse 10. Here we see Moses' fourth question towards God. But Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, if you were to survey the rest of the Old Testament, look at all of these stories of prophets being called by God. One of the repeating themes you interestingly see is some sort of issue with lips. They're always fed up with some sort of speech problem, all right? During Isaiah's vision and commission, Isaiah says in Chapter 6, verse 5 of his book, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And God remedies his lip problem by having a seraphim 
touch his lips with a burning coal. He says his guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 6 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am but a youth. And God remedies his problem by promising his presence to him, and he puts out his hand and touches his mouth. Now, in a few verses, we'll see how God remedies Moses' mouth problem. But I do want to pause and ask, well, what, what exactly is Moses getting at here? He's saying he's not eloquent. He's saying he's slow speech and tongue. Are, are these really relevant speech concerns? What's going on here? Typically, we probably don't think of Moses as someone who had a speech impediment, right? At least he's not portrayed that way in the more famous films about him. The Ten Commandments, the Prince of Egypt. This guy is just smooth as butter, right? A speech impediment is not the sort of thing we ex- expect of a leader of this great caliber, right? We don't, we don't typically think of that. And it's all the more confusing to think about when we read what Stephen says in his final sermon in Acts chapter 7 before he's martyred. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, he says there in Acts 7.22, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So it's like, okay, Stephen, well, what do you mean by mighty in words? Uh... Does that mean he didn't have a speech impediment? Or maybe it's possible we just need to fix our categories and recognize, look, God can put a speech impediment and mighty in words in the same sentence, and it's not an oxymoron. Like God be God. Speech impediment and mighty can be pals after all in God's upside-down kingdom, right? And our ideas of what a great leader is, God kind of turns them on their head, right? Now, some scholars do think Moses is just talking bad of his mouth as a way of exaggerating and saying, I need to humble myself before God, right? Like, I'm not worthy of this. Others suggest that maybe he was afraid to go before the people because, after all, it had been 40 years almost since he'd been in Egypt, and his language skills may have been a little rusty, right? He hasn't been speaking Egyptian most of this time. I mean, imagine if you were not as fluent in English, maybe it's your second language or something, and you're asked to go before the president in the Oval Office or the Supreme Court to give this very important speech that your whole nation's liberation depends on, right? And, you know, you could easily be dismissed for subpar language skills, right? Like, and so maybe there are legitimate fears there. So whatever the case, whether it was an actual speech impediment, an exaggeration, or a language skill problem, uh, we do see here that God is going to make it clear to Moses and by extension to us, God uses our imperfections and limitations for his glory. And he designs it that way. He has no problem saying this, that he's sovereign over all of it. In verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So it's, it's easy here for us to go on one of two extremes. When we think about God and, and how he creates us, some of us with these very difficult and challenging and painful, a life of suffering with these sorts of ailments. One distorted view would be the one that the disciples take in John chapter 9. As they're passing by a blind man, the disciples ask Jesus in John 9, verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Now, if I had to guess, the disciples probably had a reasonable concern girding that question. They, they don't want to charge God with being guilty of doing evil, right? They, especially towards innocent persons. But their conclusions, we find out, are very misguided. Jesus said he, uh, he was born that way for the glory of God. Now, another route to take would be to accuse God of being cruel and unjust, right? For the way he designed me. But the Bible doesn't speak in those categories either. God is quite content in Exodus 4 and elsewhere to reveal that he is the God who makes our mouths and he makes us all sorts of heights and sizes and skin colors and all these things. He does it for his glory and for our good. He could have done it one way or the another, but he did it the way he did. And as I think about that, and I think of my brother Jerry, who uh, a man in a church I used to be a part of, who lost his sight in his 20s, and he's now in his 70s, and he's still praising the Lord, yearning for that day when, when he will see his faith will become sight. I think of his faith, and I'm encouraged to, to remember to yearn in my heart for a resurrected body, right? For that day when we are free from our pain, from our sinful struggle. Can I get an amen? Anyone else looking forward to the resurrected body? I mean, like, now. Like, wouldn't that be great? You know? We just sang it as well earlier. My grandpa passed away uh, less than a month ago. Um, and his uh, three children all sang that together at the funeral. And I was just thinking about that, like how he's got to be up there with the Lord right now because he, he knew the Lord, saying, when I get my resurrected body, come on, let's do this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> come quickly, Lord Jesus, go back. Let's look at verse 13. Here we see Moses' fifth and final question towards God, and his most obstinate one by far. <clears throat> but he, Moses, said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, of all the response we see to prophets to their calling to God, I mean, where do you rank Moses compared to the other responses, right? I, I think I used to give Moses a little generous of an estimation because as I was thinking about this, I was like, you know, the only other prophet who probably has a worse response is Jonah. Because Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, and if you read, he goes to this place called Tarshish. It's literally the opposite direction, right? Like, it's literally going a U-turn the wrong way from God's will. And Moses is just a little bit, is, he's kind of close to that here, you know, saying, look, I'm not the guy, all right? He has the audacity to say no to God. I'm not the guy. Now, up to this point, God has very graciously accommodated Moses' unbelief, and we would expect God to just let judgment fall on him, right? Like, he's just, he's being stubborn and obstinate. And God's response in verse 14 is strong. This is actually the first time up to this point in the Bible where we see God get angry. It's like, wow, like when the Bible talks about God having a long nose, a long candle wick when he comes to his anger, you can see, wow, he is very, very, very patient. But here his anger is kindled against Moses in verse 14. And we would expect himself to stop revealing his plan or to, to say, Moses, I'm done with this, right? You've moved on from the category of committing flagrant fouls to technical fouls, to borrow from basketball terminology. 
He should have been thrown out of the game. But God, in his amazing grace, accommodates his unbelief. He says, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Which side wonder, I wonder if God mentions this here. Because later in the Mosaic Law, we find Levites have a very important role. It's like, of course he knows he's a Levite. He's his brother. You know, it's like, you forgot who your dad is? Oh, huh. forgot my last name was Pinkert, you know. Thanks for reminding me, you know. I know that he, Aaron, can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now, don't you just love this in God's sovereignty? He's already provided. Like, God's apparently already had this sort of conversation with Aaron, and he's telling him, look, he's on the way. Like, Aaron's on board. So what are you doing? You know? Verse 15, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. I love that final little take this hand in your staff. Like, I don't know if God meant it this way, but it reminds me of my mom, you know, telling me, don't forget your lunchbox, you know. It's like, oh, of course I forgot my lunchbox. Don't forget your staff. Now, this idea of Moses being, uh, quote-unquote, as God to Aaron, it, it does sound a little strange, right? It almost sounds a little authoritarian and off-putting, if read from a certain angle. But I think what's going on here is God is telling uh, Moses that Aaron is basically only supposed to tell the people of God on his behalf exclusively what God has told Moses to say. Like, he's only supposed to speak the words of the Lord to neither add for them nor subtract from them. So to borrow an analogy, it, here you could think of God almost like the water treatment plant, right? So the water is going to come from this water plant, and Moses is like the pipe, taking the water to uh, the people of God. And then Aaron is the faucet. He's the sink, right? And so Aaron's job is to only spew out the water that comes from this pipe, right? Don't mix it in with all this other murky water and all this junk. Don't let that into the water. And so... Moses is like the mediator here. He's receiving this divine revelation from God. And Aaron is meant to speak only what thus saith the Lord through Moses and no, full, uh, and no further. And so in a similar vein, it is the joyful duty for those of us who teach the word of God to speak what God says and no further, right? To neither add or take away from it. And it is the duty of the whole congregation of all of us to ensure that the word of God is being accurately divided, right? Like you drink that cup and you're like, what is that? that? That water did not taste right. You know, like something was in there. We'll speak up, right? This whole idea of being a mouth to God was also a culturally relevant thing. Uh, evidently, uh, at least in my studies, it seemed that Egyptian culture at this time had a similar thing going on. There was Pharaoh, who was this godlike figure, and then there was someone who was the mouth of Pharaoh and would speak on his behalf to the people. Now, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, I'm, I'm speaking in Evan's pulpit, so I have to, right? Uh, also, my wife and I just finished watching Return of the King last night. So uh, if you've ever read the book or in the extended version of that movie, there's this figure called the mouth of Sauron, really gross, nasty looking guy. Um, and he's kind of a similar vein except for evil where he speaks on behalf of Sauron. Um, so, except he just speaks, he just says a bunch of lies and hogwash. So, so when I think of Moses' story and I think of how God called him back to Egypt, it gets very personal for me because I think about uh, my own past. And I think about how 
God called me to go back to a place where I had lived. Um, I was born and raised in New Orleans, and uh, kind of the shortened version of my life. Uh, I grew up in a household with two Christian parents, but as the years went on, my lifestyle was very far from God, very much a slave to my own passions and lusts and desires, my pride, uh, while at the same time being this outwardly religious guy. I would go on all these mission trips, I would sing in the choir, I would check off all these boxes, and, uh, and yet I didn't know the Lord. And so I came to faith and I moved to college in West Tennessee, where I met my wife Amanda, who's not here today uh, because of sickness. And so we got married there, and then it had been about seven years I had been away from New Orleans, and God was making it clear to my wife and to the, the elders of our church, to the people in my life, it was clear there was an open door for me to pursue seminary in New Orleans, and that was the, the direction God wanted my life to go. And honestly, as the, all the cards started coming onto the table and I saw what was happening, I, I became somewhat petrified. Because when I thought of New Orleans, even though I grew up there and I loved it, I was constantly reminded of all of the awful things I had done, like the, the places and the people that I was haunted, I was paralyzed, like, how could you take me back there, God, and just remind me of all of my failures? I mean, how can I confront these people? How can I go to these places, drive past these houses? Like, it's, it's just going to wreck me. And so as I was uh, wrestling with this, it was stories like those of Moses and Paul, the apostle, that deeply encouraged me. I mean, if God could take Moses and transform him and use him for his glory and bring him back to Egypt, couldn't he do the same to me? Couldn't he take me back to New Orleans? Why not? I mean, the same God created us both. The same God raised Jesus from the dead. That same power is in me. So if God could take their past and take my past and use it, in the present and my ministries, uh, why not? I mean, is the arm of the Lord too short to save, right? To save me even from my own past and from my own memories. Far be it, right? I mean, God is able to do far abundantly more than I can ask or imagine. Now, I would be lying if I didn't say I still had my struggles, to be sure, but I, God just blew me away with how much healing he did during the seminary years with my past. And maybe for you today, maybe there is a person, maybe there's a place where you just feel is untouchable. Like, this haunts me. God, there's no way I can confront this. And so my prayer for you is, uh, is the same thing I pray for myself. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now Moses will continue to wrestle with feeling unfit and unworthy of his calling in the days to come. Uh, later, in chapter 12, we see in verses 12 and 30 there, he will say, How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Moses won't walk away from the burning bush bristling with confidence in his calling. Like, all right, I got this now. I got the staff, you know, whistling on the way. I got this. You know, he's waffling. He's inconsistent. And his obedience will get him in big trouble. Actually, in just a couple of verses. So let's move on. We've seen his time of preparation, and now let's follow Moses on his path of migration from Midian to Egypt. And so, I love montage sequences in movies. Uh, I love how they, for the greater purpose overall of the story, they, they tell what we need to know in a short and compact way, right? So, the second half of Exodus 4 reminds me of those scenes in movies like 
you ever seen any of the Rocky movies, there's the, you know, the famous, you got to kind of fly now, you know, and you have like this montage of like this training sequences or maybe you watch Disney movies, you know, Milan, there's the epic someday I'll make a man out of you, you know, and there's like all this transformation that's happening through like two minutes of, of song. So that's kind of like Exodus 4 here. Um, so as we survey these scenes, there is a common theme that I think ties together uh, the first section here, and that's this theme of how do fathers treat their sons, okay? Verse 18 shows a father-in-law, Jethro, and how he treats his son-in-law, Moses. Verse 20 shows how Moses treats his family, getting them ready for a road trip. Verse 22 shows us how God's a loving father to Israel, his firstborn son. And then verse 23 shows us Pharaoh as an abysmal failure of a father, to his firstborn son, at least foreshadows what's going to happen there. And then verse 25 shows Moses as a failure of a father and how his wife has to step in to save the day. So let's start at verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now, apparently, if you see what Moses says here to Jethro, he only shares some of the truth, right? He's unwilling to share the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? He only shares part of his motivations. And it's interesting because, you know, you wonder if he's doubting his father-in-law's character here because Jethro turns out to be a a pretty great guy when it's all said and done. Uh, Later in chapter 18, after the Israelites have been delivered from slavery in Egypt, Jethro is going to be reunited with Moses, and he says, hey, I've heard about all of God's mighty acts of deliverance. He hasn't witnessed any of these things with his own eyes, and he's, like, immediately believing. I mean, he's exhibiting more faith than the very people who were there when it happened. Uh, Very ironic, right? He's also not like, if you've read the book of Genesis, there are some pretty crummy dads there. Laban is a pretty bad father-in-law, right? Like, he comes after his Son-in-law Jacob, he cheats his wages multiple times. Um, Jethro's not like that. He doesn't even hesitate when Moses leaves. He doesn't make make him linger. He says, go in peace, right? And so God reassures Moses in verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. I wish we had time for almost another sermon here because there are so many cool parallels here to what we see in Matthew chapter 2 with Jesus and his history with Egypt. But I digress. Verse 21, let's continue. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So we've already seen in Exodus 4 a foreshadowing of the first plague of blood, and now we see a foreshadowing of the final plague. God will use 
the language of calling people, the people of Israel his firstborn son here for the very first time in the Bible. And it's a, a theme we see all throughout the rest, calling his people uh, his, his child in this sort of language. But as we see his love declared here for his children, it really takes us the rest of Scripture to see just how deep that love is, right? Like just how unfathomably great and far he will go to love us, to procure our salvation. Which is a great contrast to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is very foolish, self-centered, power-mongering, and ungodly. And because of his actions, it leads to the death of many firstborn sons. Now, as we come to verses 24 to 26, I will admit this is a somewhat bizarre passage. And it is, in my opinion, often overlooked and yet criminally underrated. We get to talk about circumcision. Get excited, y'all. I know. Now, Moses, the very man who God has called to challenge Pharaoh, has also failed his family. And the consequences here are almost dire. This, is, this passage is amazing. Just God's patience. God calls Moses through this whole burning bush episode, and Moses still has some unresolved issues going on. Now, it's important here to know the timeline of the Bible, the covenants of the Bible as background to this text. Moses is assuming these things to his original readership, right? He's assuming you've read Genesis, right? So you know some of what's going on here. And so, way back over 400 years before this, before Moses has a circumcision issue here, his ancestor, Abraham, had been commanded in Genesis 17... All the male children, offspring, throughout generations of the, people, uh, of the people that come from your line, that would later be called the people of Israel, they are going to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant between them and God. And so important was it to publicly identify with God through this rite, that the circumcision of male worshipers under the old covenant uh, was commanded in verse 14 of Genesis 17. Any uncircumcised male, here are the consequences to not do it. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So to not be circumcised as a male under the old covenant was tantamount to rejecting God's commands altogether. It was spurning his rule. We're talking real serious stuff here. Now, there's a reason as we come to the New Testament, circumcision was such a messy subject for the early church. Oh, no pun intended there. Um, it is mentioned a whopping 75 times in the New Testament, right? It's kind of a big deal. And so, a uh, quick uh, PSA here, public saints announcement. It's okay to talk about circumcision, all right? God talks about it in the Bible a lot. I know we need to be sensitive as we talk about it. But I would encourage you to study it, right? It is very relevant to understand what's going on here for the sake of your edification. It was a good command for old covenant believers from a good and wise and loving God. Not, not the wiles of a cruel and barbaric tyrant, right? So, may, I don't know. Maybe we need to write some worship songs about circumcision, right? Put them on Joy FM. All right. Maybe, maybe that will help us break the ice a little bit. All right. Um, my brother-in-law joke about that. He, he used to be music minister. We have this little EP of 
different songs about circumcision. <laughs> I digress. All right. So just as God remembered his covenant promises to Abraham earlier in Exodus chapter 2, now he's also going to call Moses to remember his covenant promises. If the foreskin cutting doesn't happen here, someone is on the verge of being cut off from God. So with God's command of circumcision for all of the Israelite males in mind, let's read verses 24 through 26. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, this is the wife of Moses, Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All right. Now go put those verses on a quilt somewhere, all right. The original Hebrew language here is actually pretty ambiguous, all right? And depending on what your translation is, the translators are sometimes trying to get at what they think is the best way to read it. So, for example, verse 24. Who is God seeking to put to death here? Is it Moses or is it one of his two sons? Uh, we know so far one of his sons is named Gershom, and later we'll learn the, son, the name of the other one is Eliezer. Well, it's not clear. Then, whose quote-unquote feet are being touched in verse 25 with the foreskin? And I say that quote-unquote feet because sometimes feet in the Hebrew language is also a euphemism that refers to the male private part, okay? So what, which one's it talking about? It's not clear. Some translations will put Moses into verse 25 here, but if you look, hopefully in your Bibles at least, it has a little superscript, like a number over it, and it will say at the bottom, you know, his instead of Moses, because it doesn't say Moses in the original text, so we're not even sure what, who this is happening to. And so I say all that just to say serious scholars of the Bible come to this text and draw different conclusions. And so I'm going to show you what I think is going on here from my view, but I'm not claiming to have the right one, okay? I'm not claiming an authoritarian uh, end-all be-all, all right? But what I do hope you see in this passage, this weird, bizarre thing, is that the gospel shines through it really powerfully. All right? So follow along with me. Circumcision. So this text is placed after God's conversation with Moses about firstborns in verses 21 through 23. And so I think there is possibly a thematic connection going on here. God is going to show his incredible love for his firstborn son, as he calls us, the people of God. Pharaoh is going to utterly fail his, and Moses still has unresolved issues regarding his. And so, because of his inaction, because of his spiritual leadership failure, this almost leads to, um, uh, I'm sorry, what this has done is he has failed to have one of his children circumcised as a sign of the covenant. And so God, and this is my view, God would have put Moses to death had his wife, Zipporah, not intervened. And so, I think that that's the case because throughout Exodus, we see Moses is kind of the main human character. Actions kind of happen to him. And so, I think it's reasonable to assume God is seeking to kill Moses because he's not being faithful to the covenant. Uh, we don't know how old the kids are. We don't know if they could have willfully and consciously rejected the covenant or not at this point. 
But Moses should have done the circumcision either way, right? Even Jesus, in his life, we see when he is eight years old, what happens to him? Joseph and Mary are faithful Jews, right? He's circumcised on the eighth day. And so, it may be tempting here to object and say, well, how could God kill one of his own covenant people? How could he do this to Moses after his call? Well, we have to remember, this isn't the only place in the Bible we see something like this. If we fast forward to 1 Corinthians 11, a text we quote a lot when we take the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, communion, whatever you want to call it, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And it was, well, whatever was going on at Corinth there, he says that that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Like, whoa. Some have died for how they've misused the Lord's Supper. So if God would do that, surely he's got strong feelings about circumcision, too, in the Old Covenant. I mean, maybe we need to read that passage every so often when we take the Lord's Supper, right? I don't know. Praise God for his mercy. So Moses had received a call from God at the burning bush, but that didn't mean he was going to hold him less accountable for obeying all of his words. We see throughout Scripture, God calls his prophets and leaders to account, right? Later we'll find Aaron has two sons that are killed for offering unauthorized fire, for going above and beyond what God had commanded. Jonah is held accountable. God tells Ezekiel, son of man, you're a watchman. I'm going to hold you accountable. Peter, right? Even he is strongly rebuked for a pretty serious gospel error he makes by Paul. Now, evidently, Zipporah had enough awareness of what is going on here. There was some sort of warning from God that she was able to discern, we got to do this now. Uh, we gotta, we got to circumcise the child. So she takes decisive action. God clearly wanted to show mercy because he gave them some sort of warning. If he had wanted to pour out judgment, he didn't want to show mercy, there wouldn't have been time for an intercessor to act. And so Zipporah takes a flint and follows the command of God. She circumcises her male child as a sign of the covenant. She cuts off his foreskin. And then what she says after this is admittedly puzzling. Most English translations say something like she calls him a bridegroom of blood. And that's like really weird stuff, right? I don't think anyone in their marriage vows was like, you're a bridegroom of blood to me now, you know. Now, th on the one hand, this would be an odd thing for her to say to Moses because, well, they're already married, right? And it would be an odd thing to say to her son because he talks about their kids that way, right? And so it is admittedly a difficult phrase to translate, but I think that the best, just to take a stab at it, I think what Zipporah is trying to get across is that she is saying, you are now a member of my community by virtue of the blood of circumcision. So by virtue of the sign of this covenant, we are now like double blood family. Not only are we family in the same blood, but we're family through this other blood, foreshadowing later Christ, right? And so... I think whatever is going on with Zipporah, we, we definitely shouldn't assume venomous content here. Like she's saying, oh, you're a bridegroom of blood. Like she despised circumcision or, or was angry about having to do it. I don't think it's 
good to assume that. I think it's better to, to be kind to her in this text and assume that uh, she was a woman of faith and that she now views her son as a member of the covenant community through this rite. So, God is rightly out for blood. Zipporah steps in as a mediator. Her act appeases God's wrath against a covenant breaker. So even Moses, a man who we find would become a great intercessor, a great mediator for God's people, even he needs a mediator. And friends, we have to remember this morning that God would be just to hold us to account for the ways we have broken his law, for the ways we have spurned his good and loving rule. You know, at a lodging place, Zipporah shed someone else's blood in order to save. But God himself did something greater, right? He did the unthinkable by sending his son, Jesus. The God-man came into our world and was born at a lodging place along the way. A lodging place of animals. He would live a perfect life. He would bear on the cross the wrath of God that we justly deserved for all eternity in hell for our sins. And because he is a wrath-bearing sacrifice, because he shed his blood, he is the only mediator between God and man. Through his blood, he says to his children, you are a member of my family by virtue of the blood I shed on the cross. And to be in his new covenant... Now, thanks be to God, right? We're no longer under the old covenant. We're not passing out flint rocks at the end of the service saying, all right, now's the time. To be in his covenant, he had to shed his blood for us. And we need a circumcised heart. Colossians, Paul puts it this way, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ is greater than Zipporah. He is the ultimate bridegroom of blood. He obtained the church, we learn, as his bride with the price of his own blood. See, I promise you the gospel is here in this text. So let's look at verses 27 through 31. So finally we come from preparation, migration, now we're at proclamation. So the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Again, that's a cultural thing, right? Um, kissing on the cheek, like a greeting. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. God's timetable of dealing with our suffering is not as swift as we would like, right? For the people of Israel, it was literally hundreds of years. But he always provides at the right time. When the fullness of God of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, through Moses' repeated questions to God, his initial unwillingness to embrace his calling, his colossal failure of not having one of his children circumcised, 
Even despite all that, God was already providing Aaron to help. And I love here how Aaron doesn't show any hesitancy, right? God's like, go meet him on the mountain, and he says, all right, let's do this. He's on board with the plan. Now, of course, Moses and Aaron, despite the many mighty acts of God they will do by faith, by God's grace, they do do many, thi- many mighty things, but they also fall and fail miserably. I mean, their stories of inconsistent leadership should remind us, at the very least, don't depend on yesterday's success, right? Don't depend on yesterday's obedience or daily bread, your communion with God. Like, you need, you need help today, right? You don't know what trials or temptations or tests are, are coming to you this day or tomorrow. When the Israelites heard that the Lord had visited his people and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. It may have taken 400 years, but God had said this would happen and God was faithful to his promise. And after 400 years of silence at the close of the Old Testament canon, God spoke again through a surprising way, the cry of a newborn. The king of glory also visited his people. He saw their afflictions. He saw our slavery to sin, our hardness of heart, our lawlessness towards God's law, the way we prefer to create our own laws to make us righteous in our own eyes. And so this morning, if you've never bowed your head and truly worshipped, if you've never revered this God who visits his people, the word who became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. I would encourage you today, would you repent of your sins? Would you place your faith in his blood today? Don't be cut off from the promises. Don't be cut off. Go to the mediator. Whatever your past, like Moses, he is gracious. His grace is sufficient. Would you ask God to spiritually circumcise your heart in a greater way than Zipporah did, lest God seek to put you to eternal death? Maybe this morning you are beloved by the Lord, but just like Moses at the burning bush, you you are sensing God calling you to something, and your first reaction is, oh Lord, please send someone else, right? I don't want to go on that prayer walk. I don't want to do this act of service you're calling me to. Or pursue this relationship or have this gospel conversation or this vocation. Maybe he's calling you to be more generous with your time, talents, treasures for his glory, for your good. Maybe he's calling you to leave Midian and go back to Egypt, so to speak. Or maybe he's calling you to stay and be faithful right where you are. Whatever the case for you, may it be that God would increase our reverence and our awe. And so in our hearts, to always be bowed in worship. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that you want to teach us and that there are so many mysteries and so many glorious things in scripture. It is an endless treasure trove. And we confess this morning that we are so prone to to not see the glory there 
or like going to the Grand Canyon and seeing it and then the next day being bored and back on our phones. That's so often how we are with the gospel and with you. Oh God, would you help us today to bow and worship. Increase our faith. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name.